Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, Scott and I are going to talk about some of his recent research on the Pharisees. And Scott, I am curious to know what has started you thinking about the Pharisees and what do we, where have we gone wrong here? How do we not understand the Pharisees and where do we need some help understanding them correctly? Well, this is a good topic, Laura. You know, I'm, I'm interested in this. Uh, it began for me when I read E.P. Sanders' Uh, in 1981, I believe is when I read it, uh, seven, uh, four years after he had written the book, uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, I became, you know, I felt like I was becoming sensitive to the Jewish issues. I don't think I had developed sufficient nuance to be as sensitive as I, as I am now. Mm. Um, without denying that there's very serious disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees. But then um, I would teach classes, and I felt like I was always telling uh, students that they can't call someone a Pharisee. Mm. You know, I, I, I see this in church all the time. Oh, yeah. they're just Pharisees. I go, oh, no, you don't even know what a Pharisee is. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I still believe that, but I don't think— I worked hard enough at putting together, uh, let's say, a model of understanding Pharisees or Jesus and the Pharisees. Mm. So um, it was, I, I purchased a book that was edited by uh, Bruce Chilton, uh, a friend of mine. I've known him for many years, since for 40 years. And Jacob Neusner, who I've known uh, and actually spent some time with. But uh, they edited a book on, like, the historical Pharisees. Okay. Um, frankly, they didn't really come to any serious conclusion about the historical Pharisees, but it was a good title for a book, and there are some really good essays on it. But uh, last year, or not too long ago, um, Joseph Sievers and Amy Jill Levine co-edited a book called The Pharisees, which I just thought was a, a dynamic book. Uh, mm -hmm. Not every chapter is as explosive as some of the others, but there are some really important chapters in there. So in reading that book, I kept thinking, you know, what do I do in my classes now with the Pharisees? And yeah. what can I, you know, I, I thought, I, I want to write about this. I want to try to contribute to a better understanding of the Pharisees. While I'm doing this, I'm translating the New Testament, see? Yeah. And, you know, the word, if you look up the word Pharisee in a dictionary, most dictionaries still have, oh, here, I'll, I'll grab one out of my notes. The 1976 Concise Oxford Dictionary, one of, one of ancient Jewish sect distinguished, so that's the word Pharisee, one of ancient Jewish, it's got to be one of, or something distinguished by strict observance of traditional and written law. That word strict is significant. Held mm -hmm. to have pretensions to superior sanctity, self righteous person, formalist hypocrite. All right, that's 76. Now, listen to this de definition from Wikipedia. This is what I call a non definition. The Pharisees <laughs> were a Jewish social movement and a school of thought in the Levant 
during the time of the Second Temple Judaism. After the destruction of the Second Temple, Pharisaic beliefs became the foundational liturgical and ritualistic basis for rabbinic Judaism. That doesn't really tell us uh, diddly. <laughs> um, so um, the current mirror, uh, I, I accessed on the 2nd of December this year, the Merriam-Webster, a member of a Jewish sect of the intertestamental period, that's a Christian set of categories, noted for strict observance of rites and ceremonies of the written law and for insistence on the validity of their own oral traditions concerning the law. Okay, that's a little bit better. Strict is still a problem. All right, so yeah. so um, just defining Pharisee for most people. Now, look, this is nice in a dictionary, but most people in the church don't go look at a dictionary and say, now, how should I use the word Pharisee? For them, it means someone who's a legalist, who is uh, picayune, who is uh, minutia-obsessed, obs- uh, obs- you know, they're killjoys, sanctimonious <laughs> parsons, you know. And then, yeah. you know, there is a—this This is actually is the classic. Susanna Heschel, who is the daughter of Rabbi uh, Joshua—what's his name? Uh, Heschel. Abraham Abraham, jo- Abraham Joshua Heschel. Yeah. Um, I think I first read this in a book of her many years ago, but I, in this recent book uh, in the Seavers Levine volume, there is, she tells the story of a drink that you can buy in Berlin called Der Pharisee, the Pharisee. And it is a coffee uh-huh. in a mug. <laughs> With strong drink in it, rum. It looks like coffee, but it's alcohol. So that's that's a, you know that is the classic definition of of a Pharisee, and we have to we have to battle this definition all the time, um, and you just can't define any religious movement ever as a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah. You just can't do it. Furthermore, the word hypocrite, as used in the Gospels, doesn't mean, is not as narrow a meaning as the one we use today. Um, so, all right, let's just say this. There's a lot of conservative Christians who would call fundamentalists Pharisees. I, right. I, I've heard this many times. Um, I don't call them that. I call them fundamentalists, which which to me is <laughs> is derogatory, too, and I, I could do better at that. But um, they they will use that term for that group. But I grew up with fundamentalists. Mm. And I would never say the church that I grew up in was a, was a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah. Now, if I got really yeah. mad, maybe I would, you know, about some specific point. You know, uh, they believe, it, uh, you know, they couldn't be involved in social action or something like that. And there was some truth in that. They, but yeah. it wasn't totally true because the mayor of the city was a part of our church. That's pretty socially active. Mm-hmm. So, so you can't use the term like that. You can never describe a religious group, a denomination in the Christian church, a kind of Judaism, rabbinic, orthodox, conservative, reform, liberal, um, kinds of Catholics. You can never define a whole group with a term like that. Yeah. Um, so, so we have to find other ways of describing Pharisees. 
And so in translating, I don't think everybody will agree with me on this, but that's all right. I'm, I'm trying to change the categories. Amy Jill Levine would like us just to quit using bad definitions. And mm. I totally agree with her. And I want to contribute to that. So I have translated the word Pharisee in my translation as the observant. Those people who were observing the Torah. That's uh, really interesting. Now, they are, they are observant. And plus, that's a term that is used today for Jews who mm -hmm. are observant of Torah versus lax Jews, you know. Um, I, I told you when we were gearing up for this that I know enough, because I've heard you talk about this a little bit in class, um, to be cautious about um, stereotyping the Pharisees, but not enough to feel really confident in talking about them, because clearly there is um, some conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Like, there's something that um, is driving the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. But I think it's really fascinating that you settled on this word observant, because that tells you something about what the Pharisees were trying to do, which was to be observant to the law and to encourage the faithful observance of the law in others. Like, this is not a negative thing. Um, they are trying to encourage Jewish people to remain faithful to God. So. Where do we get this wrong? Because I think this is this is really tough because if that's true, if the Pharisees are doing this positive thing of trying to help, you know, the covenant people of God remain faithful to that covenant, um, and yet Jesus does seem to have a bone to pick with them specifically, um, what, is, what is the breakdown there? What is Jesus upset about? Okay. Well, I'll put it, I want to talk about it in two, in two ways. You know, we all know, we only know about the Jews, about the Pharisees from Josephus, who's after the New Testament, who wrote after the New Testament, from the New Testament, both the Gospels and Acts, from the rabbis, mm -hmm. who are three centuries later, and probably, I, everybody agrees with this, I think, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they're called seekers of smooth things. Now, just think mm. about this. The earliest reference we have to Pharisees is they are seekers of smooth things. So the Essenes thought they were liberals. Okay. Now, <laughs> Wait, what does that mean, seeker of smooth things? In other words, they were they were uh, looking for smooth interpretations of the Torah that they could follow. They made the law easier for people to follow. They were See, they were like. <laughs> that's like in direct contrast in how I've been taught about them. That's right. Because yeah. I, if if they're trying to make the law easier to follow, that's what the Essenes are saying. I think in the way I've been taught about them is that they tried to create a burden too heavy for people to lift. That's that right. They were trying to enforce the law and and challenge or make it difficult for people to have a direct relationship with God. Um, but the observance piece tells me that they were trying to actually help people connect with God. So it's, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around that, that dichotomy yeah. because it seems and totally in opposition. And, and I want to back up because the Essenes are talking about something that happened in the second century BC, the uh, BCE, however you want to do, uh, whichever letters you want to use. There is, um, there is a classic crisis in Judaism of Hellenization 
and the takeover of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, which is then recaptured three years later, uh, you know, and we have Hanukkah because of that. Well, the, after this, they appoint, I think probably, Jonathan Maccabeus to be the high priest who ought not to be the high priest, okay? Yeah. All right? So this seems to have spawned that that general movement, not just the single act of Jonathan Maccabeus, spawned at least three movements. The Sadducees, who go back to the sons of Zadok, they are the ones who are truly the priestly families. Right. The Pharisees, who uh, were breaking away from Jonathan Maccabeus and from the Sadducees, and the Essenes uh, seem to begin to develop at this time, uh, or after this time, and they don't think that the Jonathan Maccabeus should be the priest either, Okay. Right. So at this time, the Pharisees for a while with John Hyrcanus uh, have influence with the government. But um, it doesn't go well for them. Josephus tells a story and they get booted out and the Sadducees become the more powerful group. But under uh, Alexandra, a woman, Janaeus and Hyrcanus II, the Pharisees are reinserted as the leaders because they're popular with the people versus the sons of Zadok, who are more the elites. And that's how I translate Sadducees as the elites. So yeah. what we have then yeah. right here, now this is a big thing. The Pharisees were a reform movement reacting to encroaching Hellenism and diminishment of the significance of the law for determining who is supposed to run the priesthood. Okay. By the time we get to the first century, the Pharisees have developed a tradition. Now, now hear this one out. They are adding to the law. So they see a commandment like this. If you have adultery, we stone you. And they say, well, we can pay fines. Uh, we can do other things. So they added to the law. They became, Susanna Hesha loves to say this in public, they were the first and second century BC and AD's progressives. They were wow. not the, the conservatives. You could say the, you could probably say the Essenes are the most conservative. Mm -hmm. They had their own interpretations. The Sadducees were conservative. But the Pharisees were ones who were adding to the law to make it easier. Mm. And they were popular with the people. So they had a populist movement. All right. So I think we should, you know, this is no kidding. I really play with this idea. I think the Pharisees were the, the, were the first century evangelicals. Interesting. <laughs> In other words, they, they were, they wanted to get back to the Bible, but they wanted to clarify it, and they expect you to follow their clarifications. Now, mm -hmm. I think that's how evangelicals actually work. Now, they think they're just going back to the Bible, but they're not. They have all these interpretive traditions that they think you should be following. All right. Yeah. Now, it's unfair to say that they were first century uh, evangelicals, because you could say that about the Essenes. I don't think you could say it about the Sadducees so much. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I play with this idea. But there's something about that, that they're capacity to appeal to the ordinary person, to the populace, shows that they had pastoral skills yeah. 
they had social skills and they had they their teachings appealed to ordinary Jews in the first century. Yeah. So now we have um, a reform movement concerned with observance of the law as interpreted in the tradition, the tradition that seems to make it more uh, easy, uh, more easy or easier to follow the Torah and clarify it. So, in other words, what's Sabbath? We're going to tell you what forty things are that were uh, that constitute what work is. Now, this becomes. You know, the, the first century Pharisees are not the later rabbis. Mm-hmm. There's a quite a bit of a development there that it's not, they're not the same thing. But there's there's a similar impulse there. Um, so the so they want to make the law doable and practicable. And I just don't see in them anything like a bunch of uh, pettifogging, miserable um uh, Downer. They're not Debbie mm-hmm. Downers. They are. Um, we want to help you follow the Torah better. But yeah. they expected you, if you wanted to be righteous, to follow their traditions. Mm-hmm. So there's, in that sense, they're like Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox or Anglicans or Presbyterians or Methodists or Baptists who have their own traditions and they would define those traditions as the true will of God in such a way that the other groups are outside the true people of God, or they're not as pleasing to God as we are. That's, <laughs> that's a first century Pharisee. Yeah. And that's a familiar, that feels like a familiar instinct, right? That's, that's something we're, we're familiar with today is the tendency to think that our corner of theology has gotten things right and if you would just follow our set of rules, then you will be, then you can make God happy and everyone else gets it wrong. Like that instinct seems very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is, uh, that's exactly right. It is, it is an instinct of religious groups to define itself and to define itself against another group and other groups. And it is a distinct, it is a distinctive element of religious groups to denounce the other groups as unfaithful, not as religious, going to hell. Yeah. All right. Wow. So, so tell ahead. me a little bit about these encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees, because for most people, our understanding of the Pharisees comes from the New Testament, New Testament, and specifically Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees. So that's like. I never hear about Pharisees outside of the New Testament and Jesus encounters with them. So tell me more about um, the conversations that Jesus has and why he gets so upset and why he has like this series of woes about the Pharisees. Um, What is it specifically that he is targeting about their behavior that has him so upset? A series of oys, not woes. Oh. <laughs> I translate oi. I don't think it's a I don't think it means uh they're damned. I think it's a mm. warning word. Oi. Yeah. Uh and that's exactly what the Greek word sound. Oi. Why? All right. So <laughs> let's let's back up and ask this question. Who are who are the Pharisees attractive to? The the yeah. the people. Okay. Right, the normal people. They're sent as agents by the temple state 
by the high priest, perhaps. Paul even claims he was sent by the high priest as a Pharisee Mm. um, to go get things straightened out in Galilee with Jesus or to go inspect him. They seem to be inspecting Jesus as agents of the authorities in Jerusalem. All right. And that would be the high priest. It's a temple state. Now, Pilate is there, but he's down in Caesarea Maritima. He's on the coast. He only comes up to Jerusalem when he needs to be there to calm things down. But by and large, the city of Jerusalem is run by the high priest and by the Sadducees, et cetera, the the elite uh, group. Okay. So the Pharisees are really helpful to the temple state because they are highly respected by the people. Okay, so we have a populist movement with the Pharisees running into a populist movement with a charismatic healer in Galilee by the name of Jesus. And he is attracting the crowds. And if he attracts the crowds, he's competition. And I call right now my project is called Conflict in Galilee. And I'm using a sociological model called Strategic field theory to explain, uh, to give me categories to help explain what's going on. All right. So the, let's put it this way. The Jesus is precipitates a problem because he's preaching about the kingdom of God. He seems to think that the temple is not going to be eternal. Um, He's collecting around him, some very devoted followers. Yeah. He does miracles. He exercises demons. He preaches to huge crowds. Capernaum and Bethsaida, oh, they weren't so positive. Um, he's he's got he's got a lot of people interested in him, and it's causing people problems. On top of that, he got himself hitched to the wagon of John the Baptist who was saying some nasty things about Herod Antipas and gets himself decapitated. And he made some negative remarks. And he seemed to think that you could be purified by the water of the Jordan rather than by going to the temple. And his daddy was a priest. So we got all this, we got some of this stuff going on right here. And so we have a, let's say a coalition of the temple state that keeps Pilate happy. And that keeps Tiberius happy in Rome. And we have a high priest, and we have some priests, and we have some Sadducees, and we have some elders who are probably the, the, the major families in Jerusalem. They're all, they all are concerned about what's going on up there in Galilee. They don't want a riot breaking out, and they don't want Rome coming down on them again because they've done this before. So they send some agents to check out Jesus, to check out John the Baptist earlier, and then to Jesus— and Jesus now starts building a coalition. So we have a, uh, he has uh, 12. And outside that 12, he has people probably called disciples. Outside that, he has crowds and crowds and crowds. I mean, look at the time, the number of times that the word crowds is used in the Gospels. This is an indication that this is something that I think is largely ignored in mm-hmm. Gospel studies, is that Jesus, it's, it's everywhere, hundreds of uh, references to Jesus attracting crowds, all right? He is challenging the, 
let's say, the agent power of the mm. Pharisees as someone who, who also can interpret the law for the people. But Jesus does something in his interpretation of the law that's different than the Pharisees. Because if you, find, if you think Matthew 5, verses 21 through 48, is actually um, a challenge to Pharisees, and a lot of people think that, the word Pharisee is not used in the Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. But it seems like that's the kind of group, that's what they did. Jesus challenges their interpretation of Scripture with insight, with he gets to principial issues. Um, he gets to what the law actually says. So he, in a sense, he's like the uh, Church of Christ, the Restoration Movement, Stone Campbell Movement that says, well, here's what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And that's a typical evangelical move, too, is to get back to the Bible. And, of course, the Pharisees we could say this is what the Bible says, but they develop these traditions. So I think the contest— the conflict in Galilee, in a real sense, comes down to the fact that they, Jesus and the Pharisees, interpret the law differently. They have halakhic differences. It's a different tradition, and Jesus' tradition seems to be appealing to too many people. That's so fascinating. And they talk about him speaking with authority. So I think that's that's really interesting. So I'm I'm interpreting it and thinking about what you're saying in our current moment. And I think there's this tendency, right, to who gets to interpret rightly. And you have this interpretation that has this tradition connected to it. And then you have Jesus who's garnering a following, who's becoming popular and has um the added benefit of performing healing and miracles and um, which is, which is gathering these crowds and he's offering a form of interpretation that's putting him at conflict with this other populist form of interpretation. And I I'm thinking about how they often marvel at the authority with which he speaks. Um, so I think that that would probably feel very threatening to these agents of, you know, authority, the temple authority um, who've been sent to ex inspect him. And here he's challenging them. And the people, I can just picture a scene where the the crowds are, are looking at the Pharisees and they're looking at Jesus and they're kind of looking back and forth and thinking, well, who do we follow? Um, and, and Jesus is the one that has this sort of authority, which would feel very threatening. Yeah, and, and the sense of authority is that he is not one of them. You know, they are the ones who, I mean, I don't think we should think that everybody grew up in the morning saying, I'm a Pharisee. There, uh, Josephus says there's only 6,000 of them. Hmm. Um, but let's just say that there are, um, that they have a huge influence on the way the people of Galilee but even more of Judea lift. And Jesus comes along with a different interpretation, and he threatens their authority. So now they're asking, by what authority? Who, who gave you this authority? And that authority is, um, think about it this way, is that the Pharisees, the temple state, are the incumbents. Yeah. And Jesus is an insurgent. He's a challenger. You know, 
he's he's running for the next election and seems to be gathering steam. <laughs> uh-huh. now, there wasn't elections, but um, that I think I would see it that way. So they could say to him, "By what authority do you do this?" Or they ask him this. You know, they observe this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but they ask this in the last week as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I, I would say that they are saying to him, um, you're not one of us. You didn't go to seminary. <laughs> you don't even read the NIV. Um, who do you think you are? Right. That's the sort of question w- that they're asking with the word authority. He seems to be able to have formed his own tradition. It's a halakhic conversation between Jesus and and the Pharisees over the best way to read the Bible and to lead people into into following God. Now, he's self-centered, too, because he wants people to follow him. And following him is not just, you know, I'm I'm the Messiah, follow me to the kingdom. It's not that simplistic. It is also follow the way I teach you to follow the law of God. So the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 21 to 48, clearly is doing that. Jesus says, but this is yeah. what I say. So he's posing. He's got, uh, it's like it's like the halakhic Jesus. The mm-hmm. five, Matthew 5. That's the halakhic yeah. Jesus. And yeah. they they don't, you know, they run into Jesus over hand washing and over Sabbath, what you can do on the Sabbath. And when Jesus is opposed about the Sabbath, he doesn't, and they get after him for divorce, Um or he gets after them, however you want to see it. On Sabbath, he seems, you know, what he's teaching is not un-Jewish, but it is not Pharisee, you know? Yeah. He he doesn't, he sits pretty cavalier with respect to their traditions, all right? On divorce, they have made divorce easier, yeah. right? So Jesus says, Let's go back to Deuteronomy 24 and see what it actually says. Now, it's, it, it, this is what's interesting. Paul adds to the what Jesus says. So mm-hmm. Paul starts going in a Pharisee direction with the very teachings of Jesus in First Corinthians. Uh, in yeah, First Corinthians chapter seven. Is that right? Yeah, First Corinthians seven. So um, I think we have to recognize that this is um, a it, call it a denominational dispute now. Mm-hmm. I want to ramp this up. Jesus's language for them is very strong. Yes. All right. Their language for him is just as strong. He's a false teacher. He's a deceiver. You know, he's a rebel. He's a rioter. So an anarchist. So they're going to use very strong labels for Jesus. And Jesus is going to use very strong labels for them. We're uncomfortable with this today. We think this yeah. is too harsh. This is very first century. The Dead Sea Scrolls have some of the most vitriolic language for other people. I mean, it's just unbelievable how they <laughs> talk. And you see it in Philo. You see it in Josephus. You see this sort of labeling of others um, that make us uncomfortable. And I think that this kind of language does damage. Mm. I don't. I don't know how much damage it did in the first century to people's uh, soft psyches, but it certainly says you're in the wrong group and I'm in the right group. So there's a groupishness to it. 
And I think we need to start with it that way. I don't think we should be using language like that today. I think it's counterproductive. But that language is the language of groupishness. And, and Jesus says, oi, or woe, in Matthew 23, that language is very strong. And he calls them hypocrites. And that word just doesn't just mean uh, you don't live up to what you teach. It means a false teacher as much as it means anything else. Mm. Mm. Uh, it doesn't quite mean heretic because that's orthodox teaching of theological. But it's, uh, it's a false teacher who is leading people to live a certain way that they would call the way of the law or the way of Judaism, a way of life that Jesus thinks is the wrong way of life. Mm. So okay. uh, it and so he uses that language for them, and they would they would come right back at him, and of course they win, don't they? They put him to death. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I I think we need to be careful in using some of that language, but we need to see it for what it was in the first century, and then uh, do what we can to teach people in the church that we shouldn't be using language like this, except in you know, Jesus can do it, so you let Jesus do it, and you and you don't. You know that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, I appreciate that you're spending time thinking about this and helping us think about this because I do think that we can get ourselves into all kinds of trouble um, by putting ourselves in the feet of like in the position of Jesus and calling out other people as Pharisees. I think is really dangerous. Oh, and ill-advised. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I, um, I've i told Susanna Heschel uh, in this group that I was involved in with Amy Jill Levine uh, at the University of Michigan that I don't permit my students to call anyone a Pharisee. Now, I'd like to be able to say I'm successful at that because I know I'm not because I hear students using the term. But I don't mm -hmm. think, think about what it, what it would take for someone, for me to call someone a Pharisee, they'd have to be someone who knows the law, who is fiery committed to observing and, and living before God with their whole being, who wants to make the law more practicable and doable for ordinary people and pastorally has convinced, you know, according to Josephus, everybody to follow the law the way they do. Now, that is not the way we talk about it today. That's not the mm -hmm. way we use it. To me, right. they are sort of progressive and sort of conservative and very pious and politically influential and uh, totally sold out to God. Hmm. According I think we to overlook their, that last one. We right. overlook and, that last one. And Jesus thinks they're mistaken. Mm. And they think he's mistaken. So... There's a conflict in Galilee between Jesus and the Pharisees that deserves much careful, much more careful consideration by us today. And I'm working toward a book. I'm not quite sure what direction it's going to take, but um, maybe the best thing that I could try to do is to make a more, um, a more historically sensitive understanding of the Pharisees accessible to lay people that they can put in people's hands and say, don't call anybody a Pharisee. Yeah, that's so good. I think that'll be really, really helpful. Well, I'm grateful for this conversation because I think it's opened up 
some new ways of thinking for people about the Pharisees. And I think that is generally a service to the church. I think we need that. So thank you I have, for that. And I have right now in front of me 90 pages, single-spaced, 12-point font outline for a class I'm going to teach in January on the Pharisees with my D-Min students. So oh, I've got, I, you know, if I get through 30 pages, uh, <laughs> it'll be a good week. So I don't know what I'm going to do with all this stuff, but I'm working on it. Uh, well, I'm sure they will come up with great questions that'll help round that out. So that's that's fun. Well, thank you, Scott. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. <laughs> <laughs>